My message today is, it's actually what I would call a prelude to Palm Sunday, but it's also an aftermath. But you probably know why this is called Palm Sunday, because when Jesus mounted the donkey and he rode down the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley and entered Jerusalem by the East Gate, this was, everybody was gathered there for the Feast of Passover, the celebration of Passover, and Jesus was about to become the Passover lamb, right? And so thousands of people had lined the road. Now, why were they lining the road? Why was there such excitement? Because Jesus had just a few days earlier brought Lazarus back from the dead. Now, prior to that, Jesus' popularity had been going steadily downhill because the closer he got to his crucifixion, the more intense his teaching became. And what really freaked a lot of people out is when he said, you have to eat my body and drink my flesh. And of course, we know that wasn't meant literally. He was actually referring to his upcoming sacrifice on the cross where his flesh would be mutilated by those Roman soldiers and his blood would be drained from his body as he hung there on the cross. But Jesus often spoke in ways that caused people to have to really search their hearts, search their minds, and apart from the insight of the Holy Spirit, oftentimes they were baffled. And you know which group was the most baffled of all? The so-called spiritual leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They were the most clueless of all. But after the resurrection. In fact, it got so bad that Jesus said to his disciples, everyone is turning away from me. Will you guys turn away from me too? And Peter said, where else would we go, Lord? You have the words of life. Important thing to remember. As people sometimes, especially in our culture, get bored. I've seen this happen many times. Bored with Christianity. And so they begin to look for something new, something different, something more exciting. And me being back, you know, in the uh, 60s and the, uh, you know, the Beatles and all those guys were around. They were all flocking to the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And I've shared this before. One of my buddies' mother was into all this weird stuff. And she gave me a book about Paramahansa Yogananda, the founder of self-realization. And back in the 60s and 70s, a lot of Rock stars, movie stars, celebrities were getting involved in this self-realization. They had a big temple in Southern California, and it was supposed to be a blend of Eastern and Western religion. And so I got all excited about that for a little while, because, you know, he had long hair and looked cool and <laughs> all that. And I read the, uh, the Maharishi's book, and it did nothing for me, because, you see, I'd already read the Bible. And compared to the Bible, these other guys' books had nothing. But it, it's something to guard your heart and your mind against. If you start to think, well, this Christianity thing is getting a little boring, just remember, where else would we go? You have the words of life. Okay? And we also understand from the teachings of Scripture that love is not a feeling, it's a commitment. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for us. He made the commitment. And he kept his commitment. And so our commitment to him as the savior of our souls, you know, every day is not going to be warm, fuzzy feelings, sunshine, lollipops, Leslie Gore, rainbow sunshine, lollipops. It's not going to be like that every day. It's not that way in your marriage. It's not that way at your job. And it's not going to be that way in your walk with God. There are times where you're going to feel like you're in the desert. And that's why it was, um, was it Oswald Chambers that wrote Streams in the Desert? Or Kalman, one of those great men of faith, wrote a devotional called Streams in the Desert. Why did he write that? Because there will be times when we feel like we're in the desert, but there are always streams of living water available to us through God. So anyway, we've got thousands of people lined up along the road. Why? Because they had heard about the resurrection of Lazarus. And so all these people who'd either gotten bored with Jesus, mad at Jesus, were suddenly excited about Jesus again. 
because of the resurrection of Lazarus. So they're lining the road with their palm branches, palm branch, ancient symbol of victory, fruitfulness. They're waving the palm branches. So Palm Sunday isn't called Palm Sunday. This was not a high five event, okay? In fact, the late, great uh, J. Vernon McGee says, no, 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 it's not a triumphal entry. It's a tragic entry because that was the one and only time when Jesus presented himself to the nation of Israel as their Messiah. All through his public ministry, he kept a low profile. When he healed people, raised people from the dead, he says, don't, go, don't say anything to anybody. Just go make your sacrifice before the Lord as thanks for what God has done. He didn't go around tooting his own horn. He didn't go around saying, hey, everybody, I'm the Messiah. Here I am. But on that day, he did. As he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, it wasn't that he called it out. He made the statement by simply riding down the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley into the eastern gate of Jerusalem because the donkey was the beast that kings rode into town in times of peace. They rode through the city on their donkeys. He proclaimed himself to be the Prince of Peace, the Messiah. And they were crying out from the Hallel, Psalms 118, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so, so much so that the Pharisees rebuked him and said, tell those people to stop. And he, he says, if I do, the rocks will cry out. But so Jesus gave the nation of Israel as a whole, represented by all the people there that day, one opportunity to recognize him as their Messiah, and yet it was only a few days later that they crucified him. So it's not a high five Palm Sunday. It was a tragic entry, according to J. Vernon McGee, because Israel, and Jesus said, hey, if only you had recognized me, you know, but you didn't. But what I want to talk about this morning actually takes place after Jesus has his encounter. They're traveling down to Jerusalem for Passover, and he has an encounter with a wee little man called Zacchaeus. Remember? You know the Sunday school song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. You know that one? He was short. How do we know that? He had to climb up in a tree so that he could see Jesus over the crowd. So, as I mentioned... Jesus' popularity had been declining rapidly. He had told the disciples he was going to Jerusalem to die, which they did not want to hear. You know, have you ever done one of these? Little, 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 little. Somebody's saying something you don't want to hear, so you plug your ears. The week before, he had raised Lazarus from the dead, and all the multitudes gathered in Jerusalem for Passover. It's been estimated. The estimates are kind of all over the map, but a fairly reliable estimate, I think, is about 2.5 million people had gathered because the Jews, no matter where they lived throughout the known world, they were required to return to Jerusalem for Passover. And so all these people were hearing this incredible report about Lazarus, and so his popularity began to rise again, very briefly, obviously. So this season, Passover carried a great deal of excitement for the Jewish people as they remembered once again the great victory of the Exodus when God delivered them out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses and then considered their condition as captive subjects of the Roman Empire. And they're thinking this was a common phrase spoken amongst them, perhaps the Messiah will come this year. And then so Jesus, as they're traveling down to Jerusalem where he's already told the disciples he's going to die, he's just had his encounter with Zacchaeus, who was a wealthy tax collector, he, even though he was short, he had a lot of money. And they had gone to his home. He, Jesus tells him, come on down, Zach. We're going to your house for dinner. And so he has a conversation with Zacchaeus, Luke 19.8. Zacchaeus makes a profession of faith. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, you remember Matthew was called Levi, and he was a tax collector, remember? You know the tax collectors were among the most despised people in the Jewish community? Because they were ripping everybody off. A little bit for the Romans, a little bit for me. A little bit for the Romans, a little bit for me. And so they were stealing from their own people, kind of like George Soros. 
if you know anything about George Soros. If you don't, you ought to look him up. He's one scary dude, and he's had a lot of impact in this world. So, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, Jesus isn't saying that because Zacchaeus is giving all this money. But you see, Zacchaeus' willingness, having formerly lived a life of greed and selfishness, suddenly, just like that, is willing to make amends for all of that. You can't buy your way into God's kingdom, and that's not what Zacchaeus is doing here. But by his actions, he is showing that he has been truly converted. He's had a change of heart, a change of mind. You see, in the, in the New Testament, the Greek word for belief or believe is not a passive word. For so many people, I think, today, in the church, outside the church, when you say, do you believe, they respond in a passive manner. Yes, I believe. Some people do it just to get you off their back. Some people do it because they have an intellectual belief. But the word believe in the Bible is active. It means that if you possess a true belief, a true saving faith, as I like to call it, then there will be actions as a direct result of that. In other words... We've seen it time and time again. People addicted to drugs, addicted to alcohol, addicted to pornography, and so forth. They get saved. They're born again. They're filled with the Spirit of God, and they do a 180. And that's what it means to repent, to turn away from your sin and turn towards God, to turn and go the other way. So that's the evidence here that Zacchaeus has turned. He's repented. Not that he's trying to buy favor with God, but he has changed. And as a result, he is now willing to freely pay back any wrongs he's done, even up to four times the amount, because now money is no longer the most important thing in his life. The most important thing in his life is now Jesus and God. And notice, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus was probably, if not the wealthiest, one of the most wealthy men in his community. From the natural, worldly perspective, he had it all. We know what that looks like in today's world, right? But from Jesus' perspective, which is the correct perspective, by the way, he was lost, but now he's been saved. He's been found because of his encounter with Jesus Christ. Where else would we go? You have the words of life. And so at this point, on the way to Jerusalem for what has been called his triumphal entry, knowing the wrong expectations that even his own disciples and other followers had concerning him, he begins to tell them a parable. Again, they're expecting, they, they didn't hear the part about, I'm going to die. They're still expecting him to take up the throne of David and begin to rule and reign and throw out the Romans. What he wants to do is rule and reign in your heart and throw out the devil, you see? So these verses we're about to study contain the thoughts that were in Jesus' heart and on his mind as he was preparing, as he was traveling, preparing to ride into Jerusalem on the donkey. So that's why I say it's a prelude, but it's also an aftermath because it does speak of his return, his second coming. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you to bless this time of study in your word. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Feed our spirits. Lord, you are a faithful, good shepherd. You feed your sheep. You make us to lie down in green pastures. You lead us beside the still waters. Lord, just touch our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as they heard these things, the disciples, of course, are there with Jesus as he's interacting with Zacchaeus. So they heard these things. They heard Zacchaeus' profession of faith and Jesus' response Hey, guys, that's why we're here. Because, again, I mean, Jesus was criticized earlier on in his ministry for doing the very thing that he's doing here, hanging out with 
tax collectors and what? Sinners. Remember? The Pharisees criticized Jesus for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. He said, hey, it's the sick that need the physician, not the well. Of course, they weren't really well. They thought they were well. Jesus was hanging out with people who were sick and knew they were sick spiritually. And they criticized him for it. And so here he is again with another tax collector. And even though Matthew was a former tax collector, it wouldn't be surprising if the disciples were a little uncomfortable with this gathering. Now as they heard these things, they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. The ex expectation of every devout Jew was, and actually still is, that the Messiah would come only once, not twice. This is one of the things that tripped them up. They only expected him to come once, to destroy the enemies of God and Israel, God's chosen people, the apple of his eye, and establish God's kingdom upon the earth. And that's why many of them rejected Jesus. He can't be the Messiah. They killed him. Our Messiah doesn't get killed. Well, they didn't read all the scriptures, did they? Where it talks about that exact thing. They did not realize that their enemies were not the Romans, but they're they themselves. Have you ever heard that expression? I'm my own worst enemy? It's true. Because we're always looking for external sources and reasons for our problems, someone else or something else to blame instead of examining our own hearts and minds, right? God could not and would not establish his kingdom upon the earth until the sinful heart of man had first been dealt with. Jesus said he came to seek and to save. Even his closest followers, the 12 disciples, couldn't understand why they should not expect the political triumph of the Messiah immediately without the cross. It did not compute. It didn't make sense to them. A victorious, triumphal Messiah does not die on a cross. Therefore he said, and again, if you have the spiritual insight and understanding, then you get the message here. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Who do you suppose this nobleman is? It's Jesus. He's speaking of himself. What birth could be more noble? Think about this. He's born in a manger, right? In a, in a cave in the little town of Bethlehem. But what birth could be more noble than the birth of the Son of God, the King of the universe? Right? So he's the nobleman. And he went into a far country, back to heaven, where he came from. And what he's telling them is, he has to leave before the kingdom would be set up. John 13, 33, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. And so, the first time... When he ascended into heaven, again, from the Mount of Olives, 50 days after Passover, the disciples were there, watched him go up. They didn't get to go with him, did they? So he says, he went into a far country, verse 13, so he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 minas, and said to them, do business till I come. Interesting, do business. We talked about an active tense for the word belief. It's active. Do business till I come. Or put this money to work, when one translation says. And so the minas here, obviously, are the spiritual resources that God imparts to his people. He called ten of his servants, at least those who professed to be his servants. Remember Matthew 7, 21 says, Not all those who say, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of God. Talking about that passive belief versus an active belief, okay? The minas represent, if you will, the equal opportunity of life itself. The talents, the different gifts God gives each individual. 
Everyone has the same opportunity. God so loved the world, John 3.16, right? Everyone has the same opportunity to receive Christ and be saved. I remember Pastor Chuck, when he was talking about this issue of, of um, Calvinism and uh, irresistible grace as one of the tenets of Calvinism, where it says, if you are foreordained, predestined, chosen, you cannot resist God. You don't have a choice. You're going to get saved whether you like it or not. That's what Calvinism teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. Pastor Chuck would give the example. He would say, uh, well, if somebody says to you, um, what if I'm not chosen? Pastor Chuck says, choose Jesus and find out. And get, guess what? You'll find out you're chosen. Because you do have a choice. You do have a free will. And Jesus said, he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Everyone has the same opportunity to receive Christ and be saved. See, it's just like that other confusing scripture that talks about the unpardonable sin if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And I've met people through the years, and they're worried. They say, I'm really worried. I think I might have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Well, if you're worried about it, you probably haven't. But secondarily... Again, I'm taking my cues from Pastor Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, who's now with Jesus. He says the unpardonable sin is to reject Christ unto death. Now, the Holy Spirit, he comes, he speaks to your heart, and he tells you Jesus is the answer, Jesus is the way, Jesus is the Lord, he's the son of the living God, he's the savior of your soul. And if you don't receive him as your savior, what are you doing? You're calling the Holy Spirit a liar. But guess what? Until your very last breath, you still have the opportunity to repent and say yes to Jesus. So the unpardonable sin would be that you die without Christ. That you die still rejecting him, still denying him, still saying no to the Holy Spirit. Do we get that? Okay, good. Hope that's helpful to you. And by the same token, this idea of being called, predestined, chosen, and so forth, I'll just give you one more little explanation. Does God know everything? Does God live outside the realm of space and time? He's eternal. That means before this world was even created, He knew you, 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 me. He knew in advance who would accept Him, and who would reject him. Can you buy that? How could he not know? He's omniscient. He knows all. And so, based upon his foreknowledge of who would accept him and who would reject him, he chose you and you and you and you because he knew you were going to choose him. Make sense? Okay. Hope that's helpful too. Let's move on. So he says, do business till I come, servants. Or put this money to work, these minas, these resources that he's given to each one of us. Money represents something of value, does it not, except now in the United States of America. Or if you live in Russia, the rubles are kind of, rubles are hurting too. But uh, the more money they print to try to bail out our economy, the less it's worth. You do know that, right? Okay. It's a good thing God is our provider, is it not? Amen. Someone uh, kind of uh, got upset with me recently and said that he's just too negative. Well, actually, do you know that uh, there's a lot of negative stuff in the Bible when you get right down to it? Jesus called the uh, Pharisees a brood of vipers. That's kind of negative, <laughs> right? Yeah, there's, there's some negativity in the Bible. In fact, if you didn't have any negativity, you wouldn't know what was good and what was bad. You have to contrast the two. Anyway, moving on. So here, put your money to work. Put this money to work. The most precious treasure given to the human race is the Word of God. Would you agree? Now, of course, I'm Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, but 
as far as a, a tangible, touchable, seeable resource and asset here on planet Earth, the Bible, the Word of God, is our most precious resource, most precious treasure. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. And this is the revelation of His Son, Jesus Christ, even as we're studying Revelation. But the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, is the revelation of His Son, Jesus Christ. But here's the deal, folks. When we talk about do business till I come, put this money to work, you could have ten Bibles sitting on your shelf at home. I've got quite a collection myself. Some of you probably do, too. But if you don't read it and you don't believe it, it does you absolutely no good. Some people think actually just because they have a Bible in their library, they're good to go. That's like having a car in your garage, but you never start it up. You never drive it. It's doing you absolutely no good, so give it to me. <laughs> I love to drive. Especially if it's a classic. If you got anything pre-1960 and you don't like it, just, I'll take it. Okay, of course you know I'm being facetious, right? Unless you really do have one. <laughs> and you really do want to get rid of it, okay. So. Oh, man. There's some gorgeous cars out there. Okay, verse 14. He says, oh no, verse 13. He says, do business till I come. Put this money to work till I come back. He tells this to them while he's still there with them. You see? So he's telling them, I'm going to be leaving, but I'm going to come back, and that is when I'm going to establish my kingdom. Unfortunately, even the disciples are still a little spiritually dull, not quite dialed in, not quite tuned in. They won't be until after the resurrection. That's a way to get your attention, right? Okay, verse 14, but his citizens or subjects hated him. The unbelieving Jews who rejected his ministry, and even in this day and age, those who hate Jesus will one day bow before him. His citizens hated him, and they proved it. They killed him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Remember what they said, John 10, 24, the Jews with a big J, the Jewish rulers, the Jewish leaders, they're standing out there uh, with, and Pilate's got Jesus up on the platform. What shall I do with Jesus of Nazareth? They cry out, crucify him. The Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So they're saying, just tell us, are you the Messiah? Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. There wasn't anybody else running around Israel raising people from the dead. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. They say, we will not have this man to reign over us. We don't want this man to be king. And this is the real heart of the matter, folks, for every human being. Do you want Jesus to be your king or don't you? See, Jesus didn't die on the cross to become your president or your prime minister. He died on the cross to become your king. A king is a monarch, right? Absolute authority, absolute rule. Some people try to treat the kingdom of God like a democracy. Well, let's take a vote. Do you agree with God? Do you agree with God? It really doesn't matter. The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. Do you want him to be your king? Do you want him to rule over you? I wouldn't trust my life with anyone else but Jesus Christ. And that's the heart of the matter. These guys just like many today, wanted to retain their power. They were playing footsie and patty cake with the Roman 
empire in order to keep their own little kingdom, their own little pocket of gold by doing the will of the Roman overseers. And they didn't want Jesus messing it up, even if he was the Messiah. Verse 15, and so it was that when he returned, not if, a lot of people are skeptical and doubtful about the return of Christ. You can take it to the banks. He is coming. And he is coming soon, by the way. When he returned, again, so the second coming is in view here. Jesus is giving them a very subtle overview of what lies ahead. Now, if he was dead, he wouldn't be able to return to where he came from and then come back again to receive his kingdom. So after the resurrection, as, after the crucifixion, as we know, he rose from the dead. Then he ascended into heaven. The only phase left is for him to return. Having received the kingdom. Remember what they said? We will not have this man to reign over us. Sorry, Charlie. He's going to do it anyway. And there's so many in this world today, folks. And they might not say it publicly. They might not admit it. But underneath the surface, not everybody out there doubts. And I'm talking about non-believers now. But they still have this underlying fear, concern, and tension that Jesus really is coming. And they don't want him to. Because they want to retain their power. They want to be the gods of this world. Guess what? You can't stop him. He's coming. You can't stop him. Having received the kingdom, or one translation says, he was made king, however, in spite of opposition, in spite of every effort to stop him, even killing him, he's still going to be made king. Right now, if you're a believer, he is your king. And you are part of his kingdom Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, I'd fight for it. But guess what? When he comes back, his kingdom will be of this world. Having received the kingdom, he was made king. However, in spite of his rejection by the Jewish rulers, in spite of his crucifixion at the hands of the Romans, Jesus has indeed been made king. Philippians 2, 8 through 11. And being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. By his own choosing, he didn't have to die. He willingly laid down his life. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down myself. Even death on the cross. Therefore, God has also, also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That's why everybody likes to use Jesus as a cuss word. That's the devil's doing. To trash the name of Jesus to tear down the name of Jesus because it's the only name that can save you. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every knee, of those in heaven, those who have already died, those on earth, those that are still here, and of those under the earth. So in heaven we have the angelic beings and so forth. We have the dead under the ground, the spirits of the righteous already with God in heaven. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has been made king, and he's coming soon to claim his kingdom here on this planet. So verse 16, then came the first, first one, the first servant that got a mina. Master, your mina has earned ten minas. Don't you wish your mina could earn ten minas? That'd be pretty nice. Now the faith guys tell you, send me your mina, and you'll get a hundred minas. But it usually only works for them, not you. Okay? Keep that in mind. Verse 17, And he said to them, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, one mina, have authority over ten cities. Again, he's speaking of his return, his millennial kingdom. And he's going to be doling out responsibilities to you and to me and to others according to what we've done with the resources he's given us in this life. You were faithful in a very little. The matter of responding to the gospel of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ and yielding to your life to him to live for him and to serve him. So now, 
In his coming kingdom, the one who multiplied his minas will have authority over ten cities in the millennial kingdom of Christ. And that's what we're talking about with Zacchaeus. He wasn't trying to buy his way into heaven. He'd had a conversion, a change of heart, a change of mind, and it manifested in his actions. And so it's true for everyone who identifies as a believer in Jesus Christ. The validity of that belief will be manifested in our actions. Not to earn our salvation, but as the true indicator that we are born again. The second came, verse 18, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. So not as much as the first guy, but not bad. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. So folks, not every believer will bear the same amount of fruit. A lot of it has to do with our own efforts, our own willingness to be totally sold out to God. And God understands our imperfections, our weaknesses, our shortcomings. Not every believer will bear the same amount of fruit, but every true believer should bear some measure of fruit. Remember Jesus cursed the fig tree. Why? No fruit. Now if it had a little bit of fruit, we suspect he would have given it another chance, right? But no fruit. It was dead. And so he cursed it. You may not be a ten mean a man or woman, but you know, God loves the five mean a person too. Verse 20, then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. Hopefully a clean one. But what happened here? No increase, no fruit. Matthew 5.15 Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Our faith in Jesus Christ is our light. Jesus is the light of the world. If you're a born-again Christian, that light is within you. He tells us we're the light of the world because he lives in us. But neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, you know, hide it under a bushel. No, another old Sunday school song, remember? Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine, right? This little light of mine. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Again, we're crossing over with our analogies here, but the point is, his mina, if you want to look at that as his light, the light of Christ, he wrapped it up in a handkerchief. He did not let it shine. He did not use the resources available to him in this life. And he explains to, to the master here, or the nobleman who is Jesus in verse 21, for I feared you because you are an austere, which means hard. You are a hard man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Everything belongs to God. It's all his. This response shows us the heart of this so-called servant. It's interesting. Jesus refers to them all as servants, and yet this man does not exhibit a servant's heart. Many people see God as having, as not as a loving, gracious, merciful God, but as a harsh taskmaster who takes delight in making life difficult for mankind. If you want to talk about negativity, that's it. The Bible says God is love. He proved his love by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And yet many see God as not being loving, not being gracious, not being merciful, but being a harsh taskmaster who takes delight in making life difficult for mankind. That's this guy's perspective indicating that he did not truly know God. People say, it isn't fair that God says I have to accept his son in order to be saved. It should be enough to just believe that there is some type of a God out there and that I've tried my best to live a good life. Well, no, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. 
Jesus said, John 14, 6, I, Jesus Christ, am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. You say it's not fair. You know what? In all fairness, God did not have to provide any way at all. He wasn't obligated. We're all sinners. Started with Adam and Eve in the garden. Out of his love, his grace, and his mercy, he made it possible for us to be forgiven by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. And then others will say, I want to go to heaven, if there is one. Well, you want to go there, but you're not even sure you believe in it? Yeah. Okay. I just don't want to believe in Jesus or follow what you people say is his word. I want to live my own life my own way and then have God bless it, okay? There really are people with that attitude. Well, if God's such a loving God, such a great God, then he ought to let me just do whatever I want. <laughs> and yet I've found over the years that kids who grow up in that kind of environment, they call them latchkey kids sometimes, they, they've told me point blank, my parents don't really care where I am or what I do. They don't feel loved. When they're disciplined, when they're corrected, when they have rules to follow and guidelines, that's actually when they feel loved. Their parents care enough about them to do that, to set those boundaries, you see? And so those who say, well, you know, if God's such a loving God, then why do I have to believe in Jesus? Why do I have to clean up my act? We don't clean up our act to get saved. We clean up our act because we are saved. And we do it with God's help. We can't do it on our own. That's why he's given us his Holy Spirit, to empower us, to enable us. To, he's, the Bible says he, he, he works in us both to will, gives us the desire, and to do his good purpose. He gives us the desire, and then when we pursue those God-given Holy Spirit desires, he then empowers us to carry them out. Not on our own, but with his help. And so, verse 22, he said to him, the, the one Mina guy, no mas, no mas. What, what fighter was that? No mas, no mas. <laughs> no mas, no mas, I've had enough. He said to him, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant, for you knew I was an austere or hard man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. So our entire eternal future, here again, kind of de debunking Calvinism, our entire eternal future rests on what we have said or not said concerning Jesus Christ, the, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world. Romans 10.9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I do believe, and I've said this before, it is important that sometime, somewhere, somehow, that you, every one of us, has made a public, verbal profession of our faith in Christ. To a husband, a wife, a friend, a neighbor, a child, a son, a daughter, a co-worker. Yes, it's, you can think it in your heart, in your mind, in your heart, but Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. It's important, I believe, that you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Let's do that together right now. Ready? Jesus is Lord. And if you mean that, if you believe that, then according to the promise of God's word, you will be saved. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Do you believe that? Yes. And we're going to celebrate it next week. Verse 23, why then did you not put your, my money in the bank that in, at my coming I might have collected it with interest? See, those who view God, view God the way this wicked servant did are foolish um, to take the chance that they're right and God is wrong. It's a risk that's too great to take. In some way, according to Romans chapter 1, God has revealed himself to every human being through his creation. So why do you think they've fought so hard to keep creationism out of our public schools? Why do you think Darwinism came about in the first place? You realize to the rational, intelligent human being, 
Darwinism is a complete farce. And yet for almost 200 years now, people have bought into it. Why? Because it gives them another reason to not believe in God. Creationism. We teach creationism at Calvary Christian Academy. Romans chapter 1 tells God that's revealed himself through his creation. The book of Psalms talks about in the stars his handiwork I see. We used to sing a song in our youth choir at the Baptist Church in California. In the stars his handiwork I see. On the wind he speaks with majesty. God's creation speaks of his reality. I mean, everything in this room has been made by someone, right? The chairs you're sitting on, the lights, all the equipment up here on the stage, the instruments. Okay, so all these basic, fairly basic things, really, speak of a creator, do they not? And you mean to tell me that this vast universe and all the glory and all the beauty does not speak of a creator? That everything speaks of an accident? A big bang? Really? I think you had a big bang <laughs> in your cranium. You see, the more vast and elaborate the creation, the more magnificent, majestic, and unfathomable is the creator. Okay? These things are created by mere men. God has created the entire universe. And by the way, Romans 1 also says that all men, all women, will be held accountable for what has been made known to them. What a great chapter that is, Romans chapter 1. Speaks so well to what we're looking at in our world right now. Talks about how they rejected the Creator and worshiped the creation. I can't believe this. My former state, my wife's home state, Colorado, just passed a law allowing abortion up till the moment of delivery. Unbelievable. And yet Oklahoma just passed a law banning all abortion. But we're a nation divided, deeply divided. My point was in Romans chapter 1, it talks about they rejected the creator and worshiped the creation. So you harm a dog or a cat, you can wind up in jail or prison. You can kill your baby right up to the moment it's born. How can the world get much more depraved than it already is? And yet it will before Jesus comes back. Now, the rapture, that's another matter. That happens at the beginning of the tribulation. You see, and that's another thing. We've talked about so many reasons why I believe, Pastor Chuck believes, many believe the rapture comes at the beginning of the tribulation. I'll give you another one. The, the tribulation, I've told you two things. One, it's to judge this wicked, unbelieving world. You think God's justified? I do. Number two, it's to restore Israel to their Messiah. To bring the remnant to a saving faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. The one they rejected the first time. But here's another part of that piece to that puzzle. The tribulation period is going to be a time of unprecedented evil. Jesus said it will be like, like any other time in human history, which tells me... Even worse than the time of Noah, when the world was so evil and so wicked that God destroyed the world with a flood, did he not? Yes. Jesus said it's going to be worse than that. And as weak as we may be individually and as a group, we are still a restraining force in this world. In fact, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians that the Antichrist could not come to power the, man of, the son of perdition, until that which restrains is removed. The Holy Spirit inside of every believer 
is a restraining force in this world. As bad as it is now, it would be so much worse if we were not here. And because God's plan is to judge this wicked, unbelieving world, and yet there will be some who come to repentance. They're going to suffer, but they can come to Christ and be saved during the tribulation. But in order for all-out evil to be unleashed, the satanic, demonic powers to have their will and have their way on this planet, you and I have to be gone. You see? Because we are a restraining force. You know, if, if you ever been in a situation at work where somebody's telling a dirty joke and you watch up, oh, oh so, so-and-so's here, we better not talk about that. Ever had that happen? You know? Everybody have anybody cuss and then apologize? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I know you're a Christian. I didn't, I'm sorry. Right? That's evidence of that restraining force, you see? God's got to remove us so this world can go to hell in a handbasket. That's exactly what's going to happen. So you, guess what? You have a choice. You can go be with Jesus in heaven or you can stay here and go through hell. Some people say, oh, it, it's all right here on earth, heaven or hell. It's all what you make it. No. It's what he makes it. Okay? And he said, verse 24, he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. Might not make sense to you and I, but God's economy is different than ours. The inheritance, the blessings that could have belonged to those who have rejected Christ will be given to those who have faithfully followed him in this life. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. He's already got ten. That's not fair. He doesn't need any more. You know what? God's not a communist, okay, or a socialist. He's God, and his blessings aren't given out based upon need, but upon faithfulness. He promises to meet the needs of his people. But God's number one concern regarding you and I is have you been faithful? Faithful with a few things. A very little, he says here. Now, we might think that everything on this planet is a really big deal, but to God, it's not. We've said it so many times. With God, it's all about eternity, his eternal kingdom. Verse 26, for I say to you that to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. When we take that first step in obedience to God, he begins to add to our understanding. We don't understand everything when we first Receive Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the starting point. That's why we refer to people, new believers, as babes in Christ. Babies don't know much. They know eat, sleep, and, you know, diaper stuff. <laughs> right? But as they grow and grow up and develop, they learn either good or bad, depending on the environment they're in. They're, they're born in sin. We already have a sin nature but we can either cultivate that sin nature in a bad environment or we can encourage the other side in a positive environment. To everyone who has, more will be given. When we take that first step in obedience to God, he begins to add to our understanding and give us further revelation of who he is, what he's done, and what he will do for those who trust in him. Luke 6.38 Give and it will be given unto you and that's what Zacchaeus did. He turned it. He flipped it. Instead of taking, 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 he's now ready to give, give, give. Give and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, talking about the minas, what did you do with the mina? With the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So the guy didn't do anything with the mina, take it away and give it to the guy who showed he knows how to use those resources. Folks, I don't know if we all understand this or not, but God's principle, again, we, I mentioned the faith teachers earlier, they're kind of like God's Holy Ghost slot machine, you know? Keep dropping in those coins hoping you'll get a big return. The only one that gets the big return is the guy on TV. 
But God's principle is give to get to give. It's a never-ending cycle. It's a never-ending circle. And that's what Zacchaeus discovered as he became a true follower of Jesus Christ. And that's what this do business till I come. Do business till I come. Put your money to work. Not, it can be literal physical money, but it's so much more. It's our time, our energy, our money. Again, the evidence is that we are a true follower of Christ, that our faith, our belief is active, not passive, not intellectual, not head knowledge, but heart knowledge. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So the one who refuses God's offer of the free gift of eternal life in return for acknowledging him or his son as king, having had every opportunity to receive him, has nothing. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So you might get to the end of your life and have quite a legacy built up in terms of property, money, who knows, what kinds of resources. You seem to have it all, but if you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. And then you can go through life and come to the end of your life and you're still, still just barely scraping by, but if you've got Jesus, you've got it all. Okay? And that person who has nothing will spend eternity in a state of eternal nothingness. We've been learning in our study in Revelation about the glories of the new Jerusalem, right? How amazing it's going to be. Picture the exact opposite. Think of the most podunk, dog breath, desolate, out-of-the-way place you've ever been. Think about that place. Well, that's going to be paradise compared to where those who reject Christ are going. Okay? And I'm not saying that to be mean, to be nasty. I'm just speaking the truth. And why? Because I don't want anyone to go there. God doesn't want anyone to go there. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So to everyone who has, more will be given. Okay? Verse 27. Bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign. And so again, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who publicly rejected Christ and demanded and called for his crucifixion, but down through history, down through human history, everyone who has been the enemy of Christ, opposing him, and again, there are many in the world today like that, the ultimate consequence of rejecting Jesus as king is destruction. And when he talks about slaying them, of course we know, we've talked about this so many times, everyone is going to exist for all eternity. Some are hoping, if I'm wrong, there really is a heaven, there really is a hell, but I don't want to serve God, I want to serve me. So, but they comfort themselves with this lie. After this life, there is nothing. It's just nothingness. And so they, they find a certain sense of peace and comfort in that. That's not the way it works. We are created in the image of God. We have an eternal spirit within us. That's the real us. We are going to exist forever. We've even talked recently about the resurrection of the unrighteous. Our bodies are going to be incorruptible, imperishable, perfect, wonderful. I wonder what the body of the wicked resurrected will look like and feel like. Think of the worst day you've ever had physically, whether it was when you had COVID or something else, how horrible you felt. And there are times when we get so sick, we think, I just want to die, right? You ever felt that way? Think about feeling that way for eternity, okay? So nobody gets a, nobody gets a free pass. We either go to heaven with Christ as we acknowledge him as Lord and Savior or we'll spend eternity 
in nothingness, a dark, tormented state of eternal separation from God, where he does not want you to go. We talked about your free will in accepting Christ. You have the same free will to reject him, but Jesus told the, the wicked servant, you'll be judged by your own words, the words out of your own mouth. You will send yourself there. All right, verse 27, bring here those enemies of mine who did not want to reign over me and slay them before me. So the ultimate consequence of rejecting Jesus as king is destruction. Matthew 24, 50 and 51, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him. We've talked about this too. Don't be passive about the, the, the return of Christ. Don't say, oh, he's not coming for a long time. Let's just chill out. Let's just chillax. When he is not looking for him in an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two. And again, these are spiritual metaphors for the eternal damnation, suffering, and torment of the unbeliever. And appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, the fake believers, or the non-believers. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So again, this is leading up, this parable that Jesus is giving them, leading up to the triumphal entry. On that Sunday, just over 2,000 years ago, when Jesus presented himself to the nation of Israel as their king, he knew full well that they would reject him. But he also knew full well that his, uh, upon his triumphal return to heaven, he would be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. And at the appointed time, he would come back to earth to claim his kingdom and reward those who have faithfully served him as the king of hearts. So I call this message the triumphal return. Let's stand. Before we pray, I'm going to ask that you'd raise your hand if you have a prayer request this morning. We'd like to lift those up to the Lord. Just raise your hand if you have a specific, special prayer request today. Father God, you see each hand, and you know our hearts. You know what's on our hearts and in our minds. Lord, we thank you that we can bring to you. You've told us to. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Cast your cares upon me because I care for you. And so, Lord, we thank you that you've not turned a deaf ear to our requests. You do care about us from the very most insignificant thing to the most large, big, important thing. You care about every area of our lives. You are our loving Heavenly Father and Creator. So God, I want to lift up all these prayer requests to you now, Lord. For those that are about health issues, we pray for healing, God. Whether it's allergies, sinus infections, flu, there's a lot of that going around. We lift up Pastor Ed, Pastor Dave to you. Pray for healing for them and for Debbie Moss as well. Lord, for others, you know, you know everything. We talked about that today, God. So even the people that we, we don't know about, we're not aware of, they may be near and dear to us, but we don't realize that they're ill. We pray for healing. Lord, for anyone in this room with a health issue, from the smallest to the greatest, we pray for your healing power to come upon them, Lord, that you would lovingly, graciously, mercifully bring healing to your people today. Pray, Lord, for those who are having psychological, mental, emotional issues, Lord, anxiety, uh, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief, all these things, God. We ask you to banish them from our hearts and minds. Lord, fill us with faith. Fill us with hope. Fill us with endurance, patience, strength to run the race set before us. Lord, just lift up your people today, I pray. Lord, we know that there are man-made methods that are sometimes helpful, but you are the great physician. We would rather turn to you. And we ask for your healing for our minds, our emotions, our mental stability. Lord, your word tells us you've given us the mind of Christ. Let that mind of Christ rule and reign within us, we pray. Father, for relationships that need healing, restoration, marriages, friendships, workplace relationships, neighborhood. Lord, you told us in your word as much as it's possible for us to live at peace with all men. Help us to be peacemakers. Help us to be the first ones to step out, to be peacemakers, to bring those who bring rec reconciliation and restoration. We ask you to go before us and soften hearts and open minds. First of all, soften our own hearts and open our own minds and show us areas where we need to repent and we need to change. We do pray for healing in those relationships, Father.
And we pray for financial issues for those that are struggling. Lord, we talked about the fact today that you are a provider. We're living in perilous times economically in this country and all over the world. Lord, we pray that you would continue to provide for us according to your riches and glory. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. We're thankful for all that we do have. Help us to learn how to be thankful and to just use the resources you've given us wisely. We pray for jobs where jobs are needed. Lord, and we pray that you would just help us to stand firm in these last days as your servants, servants of the King. We thank you and we praise you. We ask you now to receive our final offering of praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.